Hi, I'm Jalen Rose, and welcome to the Renaissance Man podcast, proudly presented by the New York Post. Next up, we have one of the most successful defense attorneys in the country. My angel, Cody, has ended life sentences for over 40 prisoners, and today she's talking to us about prison reform, working alongside Kim Kardashian and her new documentary, Third Strike. Let's go. Hi, I'm Jalen Rose, and welcome to the Renaissance Man podcast, proudly presented by the New York Post, a show where we cover trends in fashion, entertainment, current events, and everything in between. Right now, download the podcast. Give me a five-star rating. Make sure you tell somebody about the Renaissance Man podcast. Don't be selfish. Leave a comment. Which guest would you like to see on the show? This week's theme is liberty and justice for all. Congratulations, America. The Senate just passed a bill making Juneteenth a federal holiday. Standing ovation. For those of you who may not be familiar with Juneteenth, it is actually the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States of America. On June 19th, 1865, a Union general, he rode into Galveston, Texas to announce that the Civil War has ended and slaves have been freed, even though the Emancipation Proclamation became law in January 1863. It could not be enforced in places still under Confederate control. So therefore, it took over two years for approximately 250,000 Texan slaves to learn their freedom had been secured by the government. We celebrate July 4th, 1776 as Independence Day, but it was actually Juneteenth. 1865, when all Americans became free. So let's take this weekend to reflect on the freedom you have, and let's keep working hard at the ballot box, peacefully protesting, supporting our troops to ensure we stay free. My next guest is working overtime to ensure that innocent people convicted in unfair trials with faulty evidence are seeing their convictions overturned and getting their freedom. And today, we're talking with her about how she gets it done. This is remarkable. Next up, my angel, Cody. Hi, I'm Jalen Rose, and welcome to the Renaissance Man podcast, probably presented by the New York Post. As you know, a show where we cover trends in fashion, entertainment, current events, and everything in between. Check this out. You guys are going to be excited about this week. My theme for this show is liberty and justice for all. Featuring my angel, Cody. And let me introduce you to my next guest. 
Our next guest is an attorney who's worked tirelessly to defend men and women unfairly sentenced in federal prison for drugs. She's worked with Kim Kardashian for the 90 Days of Freedom campaign that has freed, listen to this number, freed 17 people from life in prison. Let me rewind the tape. Freed 17 people from life in prison without parole sentences. She's the focus of a new documentary, Third Strike. Please welcome my guest, my angel, Cody. Thank you very much for joining the show. Thank you for having me, Jalen. That really was an amazing introduction. That really was. That, uh, that hyped me up. <laughs> you deserve it. Anytime you're freeing 17 people without parole sentences, this is crazy. We'll get into that, but I have to ask you, where did you grow up and when did you decide that you wanted to become a lawyer? Yeah, so I grew up in the Midwest between Missouri and Oklahoma. I lived with my grandparents in Missouri until I was like, you know, five or six. My parents were teenage parents. Uh, so, you know, we moved around a lot, but mostly in the Missouri, Oklahoma area, Midwest, you know, um, and I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer my freshman year in college. So I went to college and told everybody in my family that I wanted to be a doctor and I was going to college to be a doctor. We didn't have any doctors in my family. I really didn't know what I wanted to be, but I felt like saying I wanted to be a doctor would, you know, give me some cover until I figured myself out. And then uh, when I'm in New Orleans, I went to Xavier University in New Orleans, uh, HBCU. And I was there between 1997 and 2001. And that was a time in New Orleans where the DA was prosecuting lots of young black men and mm. seeking death sentences against them. So I got involved in the anti-death penalty movement there in New Orleans and really just um being galvanized and inspired to tell people's stories who were thrown away um i went to my mother and i was like you know i think i want to uh, change my major and i want to be an organizer and an activist and she was like what's your career going to be what's your degree going to be in and you know she was just not that <laughs> she wasn't buying that uh so I decided I was going to take the LSAT, the law school exam, just to see, uh, you know, what my score would be. And that's what really got me started. I wanted to be a death penalty lawyer and represent uh, men and women on death row in the South. Hopefully you appreciate this week's theme, liberty and justice for all. Obviously, it's a reference to the American Pledge of Allegiance. You've defended hundreds of people in federal court and won freedom for get ready for this everyone she's won freedom for 40 life sentence prisoners 40 what is your thought process when you decide to take a case you know i think i don't think about the number it's interesting hearing you say the number um, because for me I only see how many people are left in prison mm. and it feels like such a drop in the bucket to have one freedom for just 40, you know? Um, but that to me is just the, 
that part, that's part of going up against mass incarceration is feeling forever uh, ineffective in the work. So my thought process when I decide to take a case is I'm really interested in telling that person's story, right? Um, what's their story of struggle? Where did they come from? What about them was not allowed to be told in court? How were they treated unfairly? Why is the federal prosecution of them the first time America has really paid any focused attention to them, right? Mm -hmm. Like what systems failed them? Who failed them? Um, how have they perhaps failed themselves? And what's the arc of their life? Um, so I'm looking for those things. I'm also just interested in how people um, understand how they got life sentences, what they see as their path and their journey. Um, I like I like competition, which you can appreciate. <laughs> so I like going up against the government, right? So I'm also looking at, you know, legally has the law changed? Is this a case that I, you know, think I can win? The work is very hard. And so I'm looking at, it's just something that you can't really capture in words where I'm thinking, is this a person who I will stay up for days on end, you know, and leave it all on the mat for them. So that's my thought process. As somebody that played against and covered Michael Jordan, what you just said reminded me of what many of the great ones say. It could be Denzel Washington, it could be whatever background. You didn't focus on the 40 life sentence prisoner, prisoners that you got freed. You focused on the number of people that have not been freed. And I want you to know each one of those lives, each one of those families springboard into so many different people. So I know the number to you is 40, but that number is like 400,000 because it's uncles, it's cousins, it's family members, it's kids. It's like a new lease on life for so many families that you've helped put themselves back together in some way. So for you, how does that feel when one of these prisoners get their sentence overturned? So talk to me about like, what does that feel like when you're interacting with those families? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, during the life of a case, I don't even allow myself to think about the possibility of winning. Um, I just think about every day, it's like doing surgery. I have to get up, I have to read these cases, I have to write, I have to check my exhaustion, my fatigue, mm -hmm. you know, whatever voices um, I'm hearing that is telling me, take a break, you won't win this one. All of that just gets suspended. And so when I do finally get, you know, the order that comes from the judge saying that our motion has been granted, or in some instances, we get a call from the White House that our clemency petition has been mm -hmm. granted. Um, that That is the moment where it all sort of rushes in for me. And it's exactly what you said. I start thinking about um, how that phone call and returning that person to their family and to their bloodline mm -hmm. disrupts generations of trauma from happening. Um, and mm -hmm. so that for me is deeply uh, profound and what brings me to the work is how can I bring someone's father back to them, mm. someone's 
grandfather, right? Because mm -hmm. the, the effect of mass incarceration is we've defunded families and communities mm -hmm. from talent, from potential, and from loved ones. Mm -hmm. And so to see that person come back um, and to see a mother you know, cry that her son is not mm -hmm. going to die in prison is, the, mm -hmm. is really the mm -hmm. first time that I allow myself to, to feel it. Wow, and, uh, that that work is it, it, just mind-boggling and, and outstanding to me. And you didn't stop there. As I mentioned, you worked alongside Kim Kardashian on the 90 Days of Freedom campaign that also freed 17 people from life in prison without parole sentences. I'm going to rewind the tape for y'all. 17 people from life in prison without parole sentences. She actually got a lot of flack for working with Donald Trump, the former president, number 45 on prison reform. How did you feel about that? You know, I will say I've never had one of my guys uh, or women who's in prison say to me, you know, Miss Cody, I'm going to just sit here and do this life sentence because I don't want you to go meet with you know, this president or that person. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's a lot of unincarcerated privilege when people weigh in about, mm -hmm. you know, who should be me. Unincarcerated privilege. Thank you. I'm going to add <laughs> right. that to the vocabulary. <laughs> yeah, you can have that one. You can have that one. <laughs> um, you know, and I just think I appreciate people weighing in in the public conversation, right? That's really, really important. Um, but I also think that if we believe that Black Lives Matter, then we also believe that it is necessary and worthwhile to go to whoever and say, give this body back to us, give this person back to us, unlock this prison. And so I've never had any hesitation about going to anyone um, mm -hmm. and saying, no, this person deserves their freedom. And that's extremely impressive because you also led the Decarceration Collective, which is a woman-powered law firm. And congratulations on that. That's amazing work. And we continue to need your voice and your leadership to continue to push initiatives like this. So how does being a woman, in particular working as an attorney, affect your experience or impact your experience? Yeah, so you know, the story behind the Decarceration Collective is interesting, right? Because I was a federal defender in Chicago for almost a decade, right? So I represented anybody who got a federal case on my duty day. If they couldn't afford a lawyer, you robbed a bank, Jalen, or if you got caught mm -hmm. up with a couple kilos of cocaine at the airport and you didn't have a lawyer and I was on duty, I was your lawyer, right? Thank you. Thank you. Um, throughout your case. And so that was really what kind of just like, that's where I got my chops because to do that in Chicago, which is a very, very busy district, you wake up, mm. you go to work, you don't know what cases you're gonna get that day. You gotta be prepared for whatever comes into court. Um, so I realized that to be a woman defense lawyer, you have to have a certain sauce, like a certain finesse. Mm -hmm. and a certain podium presence that says, you know, I have grace, I have grit, don't play with me, and I will take 
bullets for my client. Mm. Um, and that's really important for that person who you're standing next to, to feel radiating off of you in court. Um, and so I always, you know, wanted to help other younger women lawyers cultivate that. There's a certain fierceness that I think we bring to the practice, right? And mm -hmm. so I started the Decarceration Collective um, to represent people serving life in prison for drugs, but to also be an incubator for women lawyers to learn the craft, you know, and to have a space where um, they could be challenged. I'm not particularly easy to work for. Um, shout out to my team. Um, but, you know, we wake up and our opposing counsel is the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Right. And so and I have this team that's, you know, three other women lawyers and we're in courtrooms across the country. And so I have to make sure they're ready and unafraid and unapologetic about their gender and what they know and what they believe uh, is the case for their clients freedom. I heard you say that you would take on cases for free. That's what you said. Mm -hmm. And as somebody that is a philanthropist that loves this community, that resonates with me because a lot of times people only show up when they're getting paid. Right. What made you feel like I'm going to do this and own it? Right. Yeah. So I started the decarceration collective with $40,000 of my own money. Um, and it was important for me to like, invest in my shingle myself. And so, and I, just from being a public defender, I know that the people who are most affected by mass incarceration are people who can't afford lawyers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the reality is most people can't afford me. You Correct. Know, a federal lawyer, a good one is going to cost you 75 to hundred K. And so, you know, and what we see happening is that people who can't afford lawyers, they don't have good counsel and they end up making decisions that affect their case and their freedom. So I always wanted to be the best lawyer that money could not buy. I wanted people to, to say, you know what, she's doing this for guys for free. I've never charged a person who wow. uh, is sentenced to life in prison. I represent them all for free. I don't care if you came for money or if you didn't. For me, it's the principle that I don't want to continue to profit off of mass incarceration. There have been times when I would walk into a courtroom and you see it. Every person in that courtroom is paying their mortgage off of this apparatus. Correct. Right? From the judge to the prosecutor to the bailiff to the probation officer to the marshals who are standing there. Everyone it has an income uh, that's invested in this apparatus. And I just didn't want that. I didn't, you know, even as a federal defender, there were times where I was like, this is this has to stop, right? And so that's that's the backstory for why I started the decarceration collective and why I am as as a principal, I won't charge people. That's incredible. And I, I want to thank you for this because there are so many people in particular that look like us, like and brown people who know once they get caught up in the system, sometimes the facts don't matter in the case. It's who's representing you. 
and actually presenting the evidence to help determine your freedom. And for someone like you, my angel, my angel, my angel to appear to want to help me with my case and not charge me. Are there some of those relationships with people and families that you've helped influence that continue to carry to this day? Absolutely. You know, I think every one of my guys, they're like my family. Um, and I'm saying guys because I've mostly represented men mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. serving life in prison. But yeah, they call me whenever they get out and they have their first job interview or they just had a breakup, you know, or, mm -hmm. you know, I go to the family reunion or the barbecue. So or somebody's mother is like sending me birthday cards. Right. And so for me, I'm not married. I don't have That's kids. Awesome. They're, they're my family. Um, and I, I think that is that is amazing for me. Right. To just see how each person grows into themselves and there's always like a place for them in the world. So I feel honored to be able to walk with them um, on that journey. I always tell every person who gets out that I have to be invited to the celebration. I don't care <laughs> where it is. COVID has made that a little difficult. Yes. I have a couple um, people yes. who I haven't been able to go to their homecoming parties, but uh, I'm hopeful that as the pandemic comes to an end, I can uh, gain some weight. <laughs> um, eating, you know, I'll take a plate from anybody. And I see your Instagram calling you a fashion plate, by the way, which does not do you justice, no pun intended. How do you incorporate fashion into courtroom settings? You know, I think that it's, to me, it's all about being unapologetic about being seen and heard. And as a black woman, federal lawyer, I already don't fit the stereotype. Mm -hmm. I've had plenty of clients tell me, you know, I, I wanted to get the white man or the Jewish mm -hmm. lawyer mm -hmm. or, and those are some of the um, stereotypes that I think I don't represent that. That's not mm -hmm. me. My voice will never be baritone. Mm -hmm. I will never sound that way at the podium. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just decided, look, I'm going to really lean into and cultivate who I am and not be afraid to pull a look. <laughs> you know, I'm not <laughs> going to be, you know, sitting in the background hoping nobody notices me when you're mm -hmm. in federal court in front of a jury. Uh, the first thing you want to do when you stand up, you want everybody mm -hmm. to look at you. Mm -hmm. And so that's just very important, right? Because once you have them looking at you, then they'll start listening to you. Absolutely. And your strength and your intellect has been phenomenal. And all of the families that you've influenced have been incredible. Thanks. And congratulations for being featured in the new documentary, Third Strike. How did this documentary come about and what is the biggest lesson you hope viewers take away from watching the film? Yeah, so the backstory for the documentary is I had started recording my clients, family members um, back in like 2012, 2013, when I was submitting clemency petitions to President Obama, right, mm -hmm. to the White House. Mm 
And I was realizing, you know, as a lawyer, I can write the briefs, I can put it all out on paper, I can talk about the cases, but there was something about sitting, uh, I remember this one particular woman, her name was Marsha Mills, and I went and talked to her and asked her if I could represent her son. And she just started crying and she started talking about the day she found out that he was serving a life sentence and how he had never been to prison before and she just didn't understand it and she was looking at me uh wanting me to explain to her and this was 20 years later he had been in prison 20 years and she still just didn't understand it and i left and i've tried to write that experience and i tried to put it into words and i couldn't and mm -hmm. so I started recording uh, video of my client's family members mm -hmm. talking about the trauma of having a loved one who was buried alive. Mm -hmm. And I sent those with my paper briefs to the White House. So mm -hmm. I had all of this sort of archival footage of me talking to people or my investigator uh, talking to people who had loved ones, loved ones in prison. That, you know, it was probably like eight years later um, that I got contacted by a director, Nicole Jones, who had seen some of it. It was on YouTube and asked if she could, you know, build a documentary around it. And so she, well, this was like 2018, actually, because she ended up following us for mm. uh, four years, right? And so mm -hmm. you'll see in the documentary some old footage from, that was submitted to the Obama White House. Mm -hmm. um, and then you'll see the story of one particular man, uh, Edward Douglas, who we represented. And uh, I won't give it away what happens, but you'll see that. And I, you know, one of the things that I hope, there are a few things that I hope that people take away from the documentary. Um, first, I hope that they take away the unfortunate reality that it is really easy to get a life sentence in America for mm. some people. And I say for some say people. Say that for the people in the back. Say that again. It is very easy to get a life sentence in America for some people. I hope that people understand that because one of the dominant myths in America and the propaganda around criminal justice is you know, the worst punishments are reserved for the worst people. Mm. And that's not always the case. And we can talk about why. So I hope that people see that. I hope that people see that we shouldn't just be throwing away human beings uh, in cages forever. Uh, that there are people who not only deserve their freedom, but that we are richer with them back among mm. us, right? And so having people who shouldn't be in prison sitting there defunds our community of talent, of intellect. Exactly. Um, I also hope that people just take away from it that, you know, this like potpourri of black women in Chicago mm. um, with few resources, but a lot of determination uh, is doing this work mm -hmm. and doing it without fear. And, and I hope I want people to see that as well, that the solutions are very endogenous and rest within us largely. And so to 
does the the will to get it done well your leadership and your intellect and your sacrifices are outstanding for you to choose a career path where you're representing people and literally saving their lives for free is remarkable like it's it's literally remarkable and it was a joy to have you on the show because I couldn't wait to ask you about it. But before I let you get out of here, I have a rapid fire segment that I call Gone in 60 Seconds. Okay. If it's okay with you. You ready to do this? Let's go. Okay. Now let's get it. What's your favorite fictional lawyer? Oh, fictional lawyer. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird. Mm, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. What's the most realistic law drama that you've ever watched? Realistic law drama that I've ever watched. Ah, uh, you know, I would say I'm weird. <laughs> so <laughs> we all are. Weird. So I like these like rent murder and mayhem stories, you know. In, in my mind, I like fight crime. Like you know, I get people out of prison by day and then fight crime at night. So you know, I like I like Criminal Minds. I like I like stuff like I wouldn't say it's realistic, but I I like it. So you in the courtroom, pantsuit or dresses? Both. I like that, and that's that's true. You rock them both. Congratulations, you represent. Name one legal statute or regulation that you would immediately, you would immediately strike off the books. Criminalization of marijuana. Such a mockery. I cannot understand that. Leads me to my final question, and I appreciate your time, and I appreciate you joining me. What's next for my angel Cody? And I hate to do this to you. Can you kind of run for U.S. Attorney General in 2024? Uh, next for my angels, get more people out of prison uh, and being in conversation with the community, with the culture. That's who I work for. Uh, no, I'm not going to run for attorney general because I'm not a prosecutor. I don't want to prosecute people. I want to get people out of prison. So, nope, not my jam, not my lane. I just wanted to give you a chance to say that. Thank you very much for joining <laughs> me. And you, I appreciate the love. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Last call. Last call. Seriously, I'm humbled. I'm grateful. I'm thankful. The Renaissance Man. It's now and next. Tell a friend, tell a friend that we had my angel Cody on the show. I want to thank her for stopping by. Her record is so very impressive. I cannot wait to see how far she'll go and how many lives, families she will change and save. I think one of the most important things she talked about was having empathy for others. So often, we're quick, very fast to cast people aside. Oh, this person has a substance abuse problem, a drug addict. Oh, this teenager has been in and out of jail, a criminal. So many forget that these people are humans. And a lot of times, systems just aren't set up for their rehab. So it gets easy for people to cast them aside. But let's not forget these are people 
with families and many need serious help to be functioning members of society. They need jobs after they serve their time. They need therapy, drug treatment programs, education, and skills training. But most important, the people in our lives with bumpy past and current struggles, they need, they deserve empathy. Let's not be so quick to judge. Let's leave that to God. Like Tupac said, only God can judge me. I'm the Renaissance Man. I'll see you next week.